Good evening, and thank you all for coming. If I may just run through the litany very briefly. Uh, on Monday, the 20th of April, at 6 o'clock in this room, remember, our speaker is R.J. Fulford, keeper of printed books at the British Library, who will be speaking on the formation of the British Library and its development since 1973. And next Wednesday, the 15th of April, uh, Catherine Kyes Lieb, the editor of American Book Prices Current, will be talking about Utopia and Bam Bam, the two uh, machine-readable databases of American Book Prices Current, and we'll have them here for demonstration purposes for those who want to play with them as well. Our speaker this evening is the curator of early children's books at the Morgan Library, Gerald Gottlieb, who will be speaking to us on uh, the importance of early children's books uh, in research libraries and museums. Mr. Gerald Gottlieb. Thank you. <coughs> the, uh, what I'm about to say is based uh, pretty closely on a talk that I delivered last fall and was then asked to give here. And it was directed, I think, at an audience considerably less sophisticated and knowledgeable than this one. So if I appear to be talking down to you, don't take it personally. In discussing the role of the rare book library and museum in collecting early children's books, um, I should like to focus attention not on children, but on adults. The rare book library and museum, you see, deals with children only rarely. Early children's books, yes. Early children, no. Generally speaking, in a rare book library and museum, one finds grown persons both in front of the exhibition cases and behind them and grown persons on both sides of the reading room desk as well. These institutions exist primarily to aid adults, to inform adults, to give pleasure to adults. Children are, of course, often the ultimate happy beneficiaries of what goes on there, but they are not normally present. Well, what does go on there? Exhibitions, publications, research, acquisition, and cataloging, to name a few of the principal activities. Of these, the exhibitions are widely publicized and the publications are widely distributed, but there is perhaps less general awareness about the other activities. So I might begin with a word about them. First, research. Let us consider a typical rare book library and museum, the Pierpont Morgan Library. People are often surprised to learn that there are children's books at the Morgan, which is an otherwise serious institution. But as a matter of fact, one finds that researchers of one sort or another are using the children's collections at the Morgan Library to look into such matters as the influence of Italian Renaissance painting on children's book illustration, the Oriental tale in England and France from the first decade of the 18th century, the earliest printing in Hawaii and Tahiti, the origins of educational games, the myth and image of the wolf in literature, the teaching of reading in the Middle Ages to adults as well as to children, the origins of surrealism, 19th century publishers' binding practices, 
the sources of the limerick form, J.J. Conville's influence on book illustration, the influence of Delacroix on Conville, early playing cards, 17th century French provincial publishing, the genesis of the illustrations in the New England primer, the effect of architecture on human thought, the development of decorated book papers, adult attitudes to children during the Industrial Revolution in England, the psychological significance of flowers in the writings of Hans Christian Andersen, the use of books of trades, the medieval beast epic, 18th century street cries, Victorian woodblock color printing, emblem books from the 16th to the 19th century, unacknowledged watercolors of, of Edward Francesco Burney, changes in the view of Newtonian physics in the 18th and 19th centuries, plot sources in the Gesta Romanorum, precursors of the illustrated encyclopedia, the literature of imaginary voyages, the influence of the Commedia dell'arte on children's books, English and American thumb Bibles, the miniature book in France, the dictionary in England, the woodcut illustration in the 17th century broadside ballad, English language publishing in 19th century Japan, the popular reading of adults in 18th century England, the Robinsonade in Canada, adaptations of the works of William Hogarth, and sources used by a wide spectrum of artists from Edward Hicks to Francesco Goya, and as they say in the advertisements, much, much more. Now, this kind of investigation of our varied legacy from the past can be carried on properly only if the rare book library and museum first performs its proper function. And what might that be? What should the rare book library and museum do? Well, to put the matter simply, it should decide what sorts of things it wishes to collect. It should choose and gather in these things. It should study them. It should organize and arrange them. It should tell the world about them. Which of the above is the most important? The answer, I think, is study. It is the primary, inescapable function of the rare book library and museum to try to understand as much as possible about what it has. The custodian of a collection, its keeper, librarian, or curator, should study it, catalog it, scrutinize it, explore it, live with it, browse in it. He should plunge into it and swim around in it like a scuba diver. If I may be permitted to sustain this underwater metaphor for a bit, the curator diver is apt to come upon more than one submerged vessel that he did not know was there and that, in fact, no one dreamed existed. The rewards of such exploration can obviously be considerable. At the Morgan Library, for example, perhaps as many as 20% of all the pre-1800 children's books in the collection are unrecorded anywhere else and in all likelihood survive uniquely in the copy at the Morgan. That, then, is one of the things found behind the scenes at a rare book library and museum. An inquisitive, acquisitive, perhaps overworked, but certainly enthusiastic curator who has learned to breathe underwater if necessary, trying to understand something about these books in his charge. The next question is why? Well, first, of course, to attempt to increase the sum total of our knowledge. Always a good thing to do. Second, our busy curator is trying to prove something. 
He is trying to prove that we cannot really understand children's books without first taking in an essential fact, one that is often overlooked. The fact is that these books are part of a continuum. They are related to other books, some of which may have nothing at all to do with the young. And these children's books also are related to the world in which they happen to have been born. The goddess Athene may have sprung fully grown from the brow of Zeus, but I think very few things generally arrive in the world by that sort of route. Books for children have progenitors, ancestors, sources near and distant. They have, in short, a history. And that is one of the things our curator, wet or dry, is trying to demonstrate. It is no bad thing, surely, to try to build an awareness of history. Knowing the past, we may hope to understand the present a little better. Bergson said that the present contains nothing but the past, but I am not sure I agree with him. It may also contain the future. In any case, here we are, with the curator striving to show that these children's books exist in a stream that is broad, deep, and very long. How does he go about it? He perhaps begins by visiting his own shelves. He is fortunate in being in a place that has some considerable scope in its holdings, and thus he can seek ammunition for his argument in a variety of ways. He can examine books and manuscripts and pictures from other centuries. He can even, mirabile dictu, turn his gaze upon things intended not for children, but for adults. He can attempt to demonstrate that children's books reside in a continuum by suggesting sources, influences, and connections. Now, sometimes the process is merely that of letting simple logic and common sense obtain, but sometimes it calls for a good deal of enterprise and ingenuity. Contrary to popular rumor, the past is not necessarily an open book, neither is it always a well-read one. In demonstrating the uses of the past, one generally finds that there is more to be read there than met the eye the last time the palimpsest was held up to the light. And in fact, once we think of children's books as not springing from a void or from the brow of Zeus, our eyesight in general may be rather clearer. We may see that, uh, to quote Mr. T.S. Eliot, what we call the beginning is often the end. In a children's book, what seemed to be original may turn out to be merely the latest addition to that venerable palimpsest we were just peering at. And when we look at the parchment carefully, under the right kind of light, the earlier half-erased markings we discern may sometimes be rather different from what we expected. To give just one example of this phenomenon, the 1658 Orbis Sensualium Pictus of Johann Comenius has, of course, long been famous as the first illustrated textbook for the young. But investigation has now uncovered the Cuvée brothers of southern France, who in 1649, a decade before the appearance of the Orbis Pictus, produced an illustrated textbook. And moreover, it is a work of such sophistication, one is forced to theorize that it could not possibly be the first of its kind. And logic suggests that one day an even earlier precursor will surface. I said that one of the proper functions of a rare book library and museum is to tell the world about its holdings, what it may have learned about them, what it may suspect about them. One good way in which it can tell the world, that is, place these thoughts before scholars and the interested public, is by putting on exhibitions. 
Now, we all know that the best museum exhibitions have a dual purpose, to entertain and to edify. Children's books are charming, often even adorable, so they produce instant entertainment just by their appearance in exhibition cases. But I believe the rare book library and museum can demonstrate that these books are more than merely adorable. I conceive it a function of these exhibitions to stimulate intelligent inquiry by presenting children's books in provocative juxtaposition with earlier works that may have served, however subtly, as source, model, or inspiration. And if, as is very often the case, these earlier sources, models, or inspirations happen to have been written solely for adults, we have an even greater opportunity for edification, for it may then be possible to demonstrate the way in which a children's book can evolve out of a work that was never intended even remotely for children. In preparing these exhibitions, it is not especially difficult to controvert the curious but widely held attitude that children's books somehow emerged out of a vacuum. One day the world had no books for children. The next day, magic. There were children's books. And few bother to wonder how this came about, or indeed whether it is really so. Museum exhibitions thus represent an opportunity, let us say a further opportunity, to show that not only were children's books not born out of nothingness, but they have a place in a continuum. So, here I am talking about a continuum again. Does all this seem painfully obvious, too obvious? I wonder. The curator in this line of work soon learns that there is often a problem here. It is not always easy to make people believe that anything really new can be learned from these so familiar books. Contributing to the problem, of course, is the fact that although very few of us grew up surrounded by medieval chronicles on vellum, charters in court hand, or even in canabula, we all grew up with children's books. Everyone knows all about children's books. What more can a museum tell us about them? What can a museum do with them besides collect old, familiar, lovable, tattered favorites and put them on display to stir up nostalgia, to make us glow with nursery or school memories? We can even bring our children along to be elevated by them. And if the museum curator in charge of these books is a thoughtful person, he will put them in cases that are not too high off the floor, for some children are more difficult to elevate than others. Well, perhaps it is all obvious, and nothing more is left to say about these books. But one wonders whether these familiar objects might indeed be worth looking at closely again. Might another look with a fresh eye reveal a new fact, a possible relationship, a derivation, an influence, a nuance, a connection not noticed before? Might these books just possibly represent an intellectual opportunity that is being neglected? Do they perhaps have a scholarly potential that has not been fully realized? Are they perhaps worth a little more attention? That is a question the Rare Book Library and Museum can try to answer. That is one part of its role. And it is right that it should look into these matters. For more and more it becomes clear that children's books are not merely adorable. They are artifacts floating in a river of history. They may sometimes bob lightly on the surface, they may be cast out on the banks, they may be deeply submerged, they may be buried in silt, but they are part of the stream. They belong in it and they are necessary to an understanding of it. A moment ago I invoked T.S. Eliot. 
let me now invoke Abraham Lincoln, who said, fellow citizens, we cannot escape history. These books are part of the history of literature, of art, of ideas, of society, of economics, of culture. They contain the history of attitudes toward religion, sex, food, dress, architecture, nature, manners, humor, imagination, fear, bigotry, violence, education, play, science, superstition, politics, and history itself. They might well be worth a little study. If indeed it is true that a closer look at these books might lead to some new contribution to our knowledge and understanding, perhaps even of matters unrelated to children's books, then it is also true that the pictures in these books are especially worth a more penetrating look. And the Rare Book Library and Museum is especially well equipped to do this. For at such an institution, the researcher often has an incomparable opportunity to cast his eye over a long, varied, and provocative range of images. Let me give you an example. Anyone involved with children's books will naturally know a great deal about that quintessential favorite, Aesop's Fables. But to look into Aesop at a place like the Morgan Library can mean starting from the very beginning or at least what we presently believe is the beginning. We're learning to be cautious. The scholar investigating Aesop at this particular rare book library and museum can start, in fact, with the earliest known example, examples of all three of the principal sources for the Aesopian fables, going back as far as the third century AD. He can proceed from the third century papyri to early and late medieval illuminated manuscripts, to Incunabula, to the work of the great continental and English book illustrators of the 16th and 17th centuries, to broadside ballads, to the chapbooks of the running stationers, and then to the very earliest sustained efforts at publishing books for children. He will by that time still have come no further than the midpoint of the 18th century. Ahead of him yet will be not only the huge expansion of children's book publishing which took place in the latter half of the century, but also, beyond that, the great flowering of book illustration which transformed children's books in the 19th century. I hope you all noticed that in this long Aesopian procession, children's books first made their appearance somewhere in the middle, not at the beginning. Along the Aesopian way, of course, the investigator can take notice of evidence on such matters as the history of printing, the history of engraving on metal and on wood, and the development of lithography in black and white and in color. And along the way, there will perhaps be opportunities to take note of such other things as the motif recensions and sub-recensions so dear to the hearts of anthropologists and folklorists, and the visual allegories and symbols cherished by art historians. And there might well be something, too, for the historians and students of economics, of social customs, of literary themes, of education, of manners, of costume, of poetry, or of ideas. Such an investigation, as you see, can start a small avalanche. And it can all be set in motion simply by picking up a not-too-old volume of Aesop and gazing backward from it to see what, if anything, may have inspired or influenced it. In short, to look into Aesop at a rare book library and museum 
the Morgan Library, for example, is not only to see Aesop, but to glimpse a larger picture of which Aesop is only a part. Aesop, of course, is, is just a single instance. There may be one or two other children's books here that can start comparable avalanches. It is the business of a rare book library and museum to winkle them out and lift them into the light to suggest to scholars that these books might reward intelligent investigation, that they might perhaps reward such investigation handsomely if it is conducted as though the books were worthy of the same scholarly scrutiny that is routinely accorded their counterparts in adult literature. Again, is it worth suggesting that these books may have an intellectual potential that the scholarly community has not been swift or unanimous in recognizing? The answer is yes. But the suggestion, alas, may fall on many a deaf ear, for time-worn attitudes are not easy to change. The Reverend Sidney Smith once walked with a friend down a narrow thoroughfare across which two women were conducting a shouted argument from opposite windows, and he remarked that they would never agree because they argued from different premises. Well, our premises need not be different. Once it is realized that children's books are links in a chain, elements in a larger picture, whether that picture is social, historical, intellectual, cultural, artistic, or all of the above, it is only necessary that scholars, who are accustomed to demonstrating cause and effect, to reasoning from effect back to cause, be induced to regard children's books as a resource with depths like any other, rather than glancing at children's books incuriously and unhistorically. It is only necessary for scholars to attempt to accept, however tentatively, the premise that these books may, just may, contain more than first meets the eye. To fail to accept at least this gentle premise is to act like Moliere's people of quality, who know everything without ever having learned anything. And certainly no scholar would wish to risk being accused of that. Of course, one cannot blame scholars for not knowing of the existence of things they have never seen. For example, a Philadelphia edition, 1791, of Christopher Smart's Hymns for the Amusement of Children is illustrated with a most interesting, rather sophisticated group of woodcuts, which might appear to be important as showing the state of American book illustration of the period. Neither the artist nor the engraver has been identified. Now, this 1791 Philadelphia edition is a very rare book of which only two copies are known, one of them at the American Antiquarian Society in Worcester, Massachusetts, and the other at the Pierpont Morgan Library in New York. But it happens that in the children's book collections at the Pierpont Morgan Library, there is an earlier edition of the Christopher Smart work, published in Dublin probably about 1772, the year after the London first edition. This Dublin publication of circa 1772 is the rarest of all the editions of the work, for it appears to survive only in the copy at the Morgan Library. It is illustrated. And when its illustrations are compared with those in the 1791 Philadelphia edition, it transpires that many of the same woodcut blocks were used in both editions. So the Philadelphia edition however its woodcut blocks managed to make the voyage from Ireland to Pennsylvania, is not precisely a specimen of American book illustration after all. But until the two copies, the 1791 Philadelphia Rare 
and the circa 1772 Dublin Unique were compared under a microscope at the Morgan Library and the results were made known, scholars had no reason to question the accepted view of the matter. Now, this is, of course, no more than a routine scholarly exercise, but it is perhaps useful as a demonstration of the way in which received opinion can occasionally be altered by careful investigation. And might it not also be used as a demonstration of the fact that this kind of scholarship, which is not, alas, routinely applied to children's books, could profitably be directed at them? Might not there be another nugget or two of interest, even perhaps of significance, waiting to be uncovered by the scholar who approaches children's books as the intellectual resource they are? Now, although I am suggesting that early children's books have an importance for scholarship that has not always been recognized, I still wish to retain a proper perspective. Exaggeration is undesirable. Sources may indeed often be followed very far back, but not every work can be found to have an ancestry dating from the flood. I believe that children's books are important as an intellectual resource, an unexplored sea bottom, but that is certainly not to say that many other resources are not more important. I am only suggesting that a thorough, adult, scholarly approach to children's books is necessary to give us a complete view. I'm only asking that scholars seek to cover all contingencies. Sometimes, of course, one can carry meticulous caution too far, uh, like the fellow in the characters of Theophrastus who insists on a witness when he is being repaid a debt. But a thorough scholar, I suggest, who wishes to take all possibilities into account will ignore children's books at some peril. It is a role of the rare book library and museum to demonstrate this to show that children's books are part of the mainstream of history, to indicate to the general public as well as to scholars that children's books have roots like those of any other growing organism, and that these roots are apt to reach almost anywhere, sometimes into unlikely places. For example, authors, illustrators, and others concerned with children's books have found interesting, if a bit peculiar, an anonymous pre-Victorian English tongue-twister game in the form of an illustrated book with the one-word title Aldebaranti Foski Forniosticos. Aldebaranti Foski Forniosticos. It is a piece of delicious, harmless, tongue-tripping nonsense, an early 19th century effusion of entertainment for entertainment's sake when that was still very uncommon in books for children. But in fact, this English jeu d'esprit flowers on a very long vine indeed, a plant that has its roots in satirical oriental fantasies concocted by bilingual bored Jacobite exiles at the court of Louis XIV shortly after the end of the 17th century. They were intended as parodies of those fanciful tales recently arrived in France from the Orient, which we have come to know as the Arabian Nights. And though they ultimately led to our tongue twister for English children, Long before that, they led to a whole genre of licentious French stories aimed at a different readership. Before I conclude, let me float around again to that metaphor of a river. I said that children's books were artifacts carried along in a river of history, sometimes drifting on the surface, sometimes being cast up on the shore, sometimes lodging in the bottom. In fact, the stream can also be only a memory a dried river bed under which fossils lie waiting to be dug up. This digging is not always a simple task. 
a celebrated archaeologist once told me that the thing he found most difficult to teach his student helpers on an ex expedition was that everything, repeat everything on a dig, was potentially of importance. Now, before my metaphors run wild entirely, for all this scuba diving and fishing and digging, one needs equipment, tools. The right tools can help scholars pluck artifacts from history's river and set them beside other artifacts to see what can be seen from them. And if we may now re-enter the rare book library and museum with its collection of early children's books, that still imperfectly understood, still largely unexplored collection, no more powerful tool can be given the scholar, no better aid in penetrating the mysteries than a proper catalog of the collection. By a proper catalog, I mean one that incorporates the most sophisticated scholarship and avails itself of the latest techniques, even those developed for what are considered the more serious purposes of adult literary study and bibliography. On the premise that there are children's books in the collection, not all, but some, which will reward intelligent, sophisticated scrutiny, what is needed is a tool that will enable scholars to study the collection in an appropriately sophisticated manner. That tool, as I have said, is a proper catalog of the collection. And in fact, at the Morgan Library right now, we are engaged in forging what we hope will be just such a tool. But that's another story. I, I might just mention in passing that this catalog will attempt to record the many rare, interesting, occasionally significant items in the collection in as full, precise, and useful detail as possible. For the unique items, those which survive solely in the copy of the Morgan Library, the descriptions will, of course, also be unique and will consequently take on an added significance. But for all the items cataloged, we are attempting to consider possible sources, influences, connections, wherever the trails lead, because we regard this cataloging task as an opportunity to employ and promote the latest advances in scholarship, we are assembling and trying to systematize information on such matters as press figures, book lists and advertisements, subscriber lists, prices, paper, watermarks, bindings, graphic processes, concealed authorship of both text and illustration, and various other matters as well. In support of our cataloging, we are developing a not inconsiderable apparatus, including an illustrator's and engraver's file, a chronological and genealogical printer and publisher file, a book list and advertisements file, a bibliographical source file, a uniform title authority file, a historical and bibliographical notabilia file, a style book, and a model book. And some distance in the future, lie an iconography file, a comprehensive subject analysis of the collection, and an exhaustive study of the graphic processes used in the illustrations. Now, I don't wish this to seem abstruse or pretentious. The reasoning behind it all is not very profound, really. I just feel that more can be learned from these books than has been generally realized. More about other children's books, naturally, but also more about matters that may be quite removed from children's books. It seems worth doing. In fact, it can all be summed up quite simply. I do not think one can really understand children's books 
without knowing something about the whole picture of which they are a part. And that is what the rare book library and museum can try to do, give the whole picture. Thank you. instance as in others uh, with the usual wine and fig bars and pretzels in room 502 and as usual I invite you to stand not on the order of your going but to go uh, to 502 and uh, enjoy the above with uh, our speaker and the rest of us thank you for coming <laughs>